I heard about a man who dreamed he was walking through the desert and he heard a voice and it said, pick up some of the pebbles, tomorrow you will be happy and sad. When he woke up, he thought, well, that was the most vivid dream I've ever had. He had reached down in the dream and he had picked up some pebbles in obedience to the voice and then he thought to feel his pocket. He said, sure enough, there's something in his pocket. But they weren't pebbles, they were jewels. And the man was so happy he had obeyed the voice and picked some up. But he was sad he had not picked up more. <laughs> That's something how it is with studying the Word of God. And we're going to be so thankful when Jesus comes for the words of life that we've hidden in our hearts and the souls that we have brought to Christ. But we'll probably be sad also that we had not done more with the time that we have. I'm very thankful for the time the bachelors have been able to share with you. And we've enjoyed visiting with some old friends. Not that they're like old in years or anything, but longtime friends. And making some new ones. But we're going to conclude our study tonight talking about the days of Elijah. And there's much more I could say. And there's so many types of Christ in the story of Elijah, as was in our scripture reading today. Um, there's probably, well, I don't know how to say that. No, I won't. So you'll never know. Just this is between me and my Lord. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to um, the first book of Kings, chapter 19. We're going to pick up where we left off. First Kings, chapter 19. Now, in our last study, the fire of God had come down. He prayed the water of God had come down. Unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We showed how the children of Israel were baptized in the sea and in the cloud. Indeed, even our world, I did not mention this this morning, our world was washed in water back in the days of Noah. Peter said, 2 Peter chapter 3, when the Lord comes, it will be washed in fire, and then God makes a new earth. Even the world is made new after it is born of the water and the fire. And we need both baptisms. We need the water baptism, and we need the spirit baptism. And it's so important if we're going to do the work of God and live the life that we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus did not venture into his ministry until he had been anointed by the Spirit. And that, of course, is what the word Messiah and Christ, Christos, means, the anointed. So, Ahab, he rides through the storm. Elijah runs before him. He comes to the fortress of Jezreel. Elijah sleeping at the gates. You think Ahab would leave having enough hospitality to say, let me get you a room for the night. And Ahab went and told Jezebel everything that had happened. You, you wonder, how did Jezebel feel about all of her prophets being killed? She was pretty happy to kill all of Jehovah's prophets, but now Ahab comes back and says, uh, you know, as you did, it's been done to you. All your prophets are dead. And it was all done by one prophet of God. It's like the song, The Mighty Fortress, where that verse says, one little word will fell him. The word of God can bring down the devil and his forces. And Jezebel is so enraged. 
She is fuming and stomping, and she sends a messenger to Elijah. So let the gods do so to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Sends a very precise, threatening message that uh, I'm going to kill you. That's what it says. And Elijah does something that is a little bit of a letdown. Every other time so far in the study of Elijah, from the first time he appeared, it says, the word of the Lord said, come, the word of the Lord said, go, and he does what the word of the Lord says. Now Elijah runs when he's not told to run. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. You ever heard that expression, run for your life? It comes from this story. He ran for his life and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He's heading south. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He went down, crossed the Jordan, over into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a juniper or a broom tree. And he prayed he might die. And he said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my prophets. You know, it's amazing to me how quickly sometimes you can go from the mountaintop where you are praying and the fire and the rain are coming down. And you just experience the power of God and the authority of God and the faith and the confidence of God. And here's the messenger of God. And after he gets a threatening message, he runs for his life and he's hiding under a broom tree out in the wilderness praying he might die. You know, sometimes the mountain experiences are followed by valleys. You ever discovered that... Uh, Mountains and valleys <laughs> follow each other. Life is sometimes a series of ups and downs. Look at the history of Israel. They got a good king and they're riding high and then they get confident and then they get a bad king and they go down and they're overcome and, and it seems like it's a roller coaster, something like our lives. David, at the zenith of his power and success and victories, he takes a, a walk on his roof and from his roof he spies Bathsheba. Oh, he fell into a valley after that. Jesus is up on the mountain, and he appears, Moses and Elijah appear to him. Glory, the voice of God. Clouds of angels, and he comes down, and there's a man with a demon-possessed boy in the valley. Mountains and valleys. You've got to be careful when you're on the mountain. Someone said, if you don't want to be struck by lightning, kneel as far as you can. Humble yourself. So he runs, Lord, take my life, let me die. I'm thinking, well, if you really wanted to die, why are you running from Jezebel? You should have just stayed there. <laughs> right? Sometimes we pray things we don't really mean. And he lay, he fell asleep. You know, a lot of times we get discouraged and we're just plain tired and hungry. Karen and I always try to schedule our arguments for when we're tired and hungry. <laughs> That's the best time to have a good one. <laughs> So many of the things that we argue about, I don't just mean us, I mean you too. If you had a good night's sleep and a decent meal, it changes your whole perspective. So under the broom tree, out in the desert, he's praying for death. And he falls asleep. He wakes up and look. 
As he slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touches him and says, Arise and eat. I'm in verse 5 of chapter 19. Then he looks, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank, and he was still so tired, he fell right back to sleep. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him. The angel's gentle, you know, he touches him. When the angel woke up Peter, it says he smote him. The angel touches him. It says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. You know, that's true of all of us. The journey is too great for us. And you need heavenly food if you're going to make this journey. We all need to learn how to eat the food that God provides, and you can make the journey that way. Notice what happens. He arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is interesting. Elijah the prophet goes up to Mount Horeb, sometimes known as Mount Sinai, and he fasts 40 days and 40 nights. Who are the three people that fast 40 days and 40 nights? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. There are two individuals in the Bible that go up to Mount Sinai and talk to God. Moses and Elijah. Who are the two individuals that speak to Jesus on the mountain? You find that in Mark chapter 9. It's in all three Gospels. Moses and Elijah. They represent the word of God. You'll find they, it's like the law and the prophets. Last two names mentioned in the Old Testament. Remember the law of Moses? Behold, I send you Elijah, the two who spoke from the mountain. God from that mountain, he wrote with his finger, he spoke with his voice, his covenant. And the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant is not the Ten Commandments. Both covenants involve the Ten Commandments. In one place it is written on stone, in the other place it is written in your heart. In one place it's the covenant of the people saying, we will keep it. The other place it's the covenant of God saying, I will cause you to keep it. Law has not changed. Seventh-day Adventists have a special message that sin is still the transgression of the law, and people need to know that. We don't get a 10% discount because of the new covenant. Some churches think it's a 20% discount. They think they're free on the idolatry commandment. So don't be ever ashamed of that. These two men went up there and they spoke to God. And so he's up there on the mountain. And he goes and he finds a cave. I like him better already. <laughs> and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> It's like, for the first time, God is trying to say, now, Elijah, you know, you have been following my word through your whole experience, through this whole famine. I said, go here, go there, do this, do that. I told you when to run and hide before. Why did you take off? He said, well, that woman threatened my life. Why is it that men are intimidated by women? <laughs> Look what happened to Samson. I mean... You got to know Delilah's up to no good when she says, tell me the secret of your power. And every time he wakes up, he's tied up with something. <laughs> and he finally tells her the secret. Peter, he says, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter meant it. He pulled out a sword. A little while later, a girl is making fun of him. He says, I don't know Jesus. 
Why are we so easily intimidated? I suspect it's because most of you have had mothers at some point. I don't know. I had a Jewish mother that had a very special gift for making me feel guilty. <laughs> you got to be Jewish to understand that. And so he's up there in the cave. And uh, the Lord says, what are you doing here? And so he begins to rehearse all of his woe. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel. I, they've forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. God didn't respond. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And he goes out to the mouth of the cave, and the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And that must have been some tornado that went through, cracking rocks. And after the wind, an earthquake, some of the most powerful natural forces. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, the fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. You notice it doesn't say the Lord was not in the voice, meaning the Lord was in the voice. A still, small voice. I remember hearing a story when we were doing ministry on the Navajo Reservation. Some of the preachers that would go out there, they'd pitch their tents. I went to a couple of the services where they would carry on and they'd jump around and they'd, they'd slam their Bibles and they'd shout and scream. And, and uh, someone asked one of the Navajos after one of those services, what did he think? He said, loud wind, big thunder, no rain. <laughs> and sometimes it's, we think that the power of God, the voice of God, is going to be in these big dramatic things, but more times than not, God changes us through a still small voice that speaks to our hearts. And so he wrapped his face and he stood in the entrance of the cave and the voice came to him and says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God is so good. Elijah was running somewhere. God had not sent him. And you notice God supplied for him miraculously along the way, even though he was going the wrong way. Don't misinterpret God's blessing you to mean you're always going the right direction. God sends the sunshine and the rain on everybody. And sometimes we misunderstand the mercy of God and we presume on his grace. We think God's still blessing me. I guess everything's okay. Elijah was running 40 days and 40 nights in the wrong direction, somewhere God had not told him to go. He went because he thought, I need a word from the Lord, but he hadn't just stopped and waited. And God said, what are you doing here? And his, you know what his answer is? Same thing he said before. I've been very zealous, verse 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Lord, where have you been? Didn't you notice what I've done for you? Because of the children of Israel, they forsook your covenant, they tore down your altars, they killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left. It's only me. I'm going to start my own ministry, call it Wine and Pine Ministries. <laughs> now, Elijah doesn't say very much positive, does he? Listen to what God says. The Lord said to him, go return. Do a U-turn. I appreciate you wanted to be close to me here and you climbed Mount Sinai, but I never told you to come. You think because God's people are in apostasy that you're supposed to run for cover. You cannot bail a boat when you're in the water. You've got to be in the boat. 
You cannot clean a house from the outside, not very easily. Does the church need revival? There are some who are going to tell you the way to revive the church is to break off and start a new group. And you just wait and watch. It won't be long before someone in that group will apostatize. Folks have asked me, Doug, is there ever going to be a time when you think we might leave the church because of apostasy? I thought about this a long time ago. And I said, um, I've come to the conclusion that as long as I am able to preach and practice my convictions within the church, I'll do everything in my power to make a, a positive influence. When the children of Israel lost faith at the Jordan, of River, the Jordan River, they didn't believe they could enter in, and God said, now because of your unbelief, you're going to wander 40 years. Joshua and Caleb had faith, Moses had faith, but they went back in the wilderness with the people. And yep, sometimes God's people are going through hard times because of unbelief, but they are still God's people. And God told Elijah, go return. I've raised you up to do a great work, and the greatest work that has ever been done by any prophet you just did. The fire came down. The people have turned back to me. You slew all the prophets, and just because of Jezebel, you ran. If I took care of all the prophets and the fire and the rain, couldn't I take care of Jezebel? I'm paraphrasing. Go return. And then he gives them some unique instructions. He said, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, he said, I want you to take the back route to the north. Go to Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king of Syria. Well, that's unusual, a Jewish prophet picking the next king of Syria. You will also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshai, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And God goes on to say, It will be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. But Elisha used a different kind of sword. The sword of the word. Jehu was the one that basically annihilated the house of Ahab. Haziel was the one who punished the apostate people in Israel. He was a king that fought against the northern tribes and as a judgment. But then God says, lest you think you're the only one left. He said, I still have 7,000 in Israel. He's not even talking about the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You think, woe is me. I am the only one left. God said, don't think so highly of yourself. There's a lot of people left. So he departed from there. And he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Interesting number. <clears throat> 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. Now, how many apostles does Jesus have? You're going to find some similarities between Elijah and Jesus in our story that follows. And Elijah passed by, and he threw his mantle on him, and he understood what that meant. He took his robe and put it on his shoulders, and he basically said, you're being called to be my apprentice. As a matter of fact, we even use that terminology when we talk about being called to ministry. The mantle has been laid upon them. Now, Elisha knew what that meant. Verse 20, he left the oxen, and he ran after Elijah, and he said, please let me kiss my mother and my father goodbye, and I will follow you. He said, go back, for what have I done? You're free. Elisha turned back from him. 
He took a yoke of oxen, presumably after bidding farewell to his parents. He slaughtered the, the yoke he was working with. He boiled their flesh of the oxen on the equipment, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. He's basically, you ever heard the expression, burn the ships? I think it was Cortez that when he landed in Central America, they knew they were going to have to fight the Inca Empire. He had like 600 soldiers going against a million Incas. And he knew the men might be fearful and keep thinking of escape. So while they were ashore, he told some of his servants to burn the ships. So they had only one choice, perish or fight and live. No retreat. Elisha did not want to turn back from following Elijah. Someone came to Jesus once and said, Lord, I want to follow you, but first I need to bury my father. And Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and turning back is worthy of the kingdom. He was referring back to the experience of Elisha who burnt his plow. Now, don't miss this. Elisha, he's working with other servants. He is plowing. They've got 12 yoke. How many in a yoke? 12 pair, 24 oxen. He's with the 12th. He comes from a wealthy family. He stands to inherit a lot from this family. But he turns his back on everything earthly, like when Jesus went to the disciples and said, follow me, and they left their nets. They left the tax booth or the cash register, and they followed Jesus. Peter said, we have forsaken all to follow you. Elisha said, let me kiss my mother and father goodbye, and I will follow you. And he did. Turn with me now. It says, he then became, Elisha became his servant. And being a servant, I mean, you know, if you were asked to be a servant for Bill Gates, you'd probably do okay. If you were asked to be a servant for the president, you'd probably have decent quarters. But if you got a call, and it says on the application, part of your job description is you're to be a servant of Elijah, you could be living in a cave or under a bush or in an attic. How many would sign up for that? Now go with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. I don't have time to cover everything else that happened, but I want to jump to what I think is one of the most beautiful parts of the story. Do you know the Bible says that uh, Elijah wrote a letter? He not only prophesied, he actually wrote a letter, letter that you find, I believe it's in Chronicles, to King Jeroham, who was the son of Jehoshaphat, to talk to him about his idolatry and to tell him about a judgment that would come upon him if he didn't repent, and he didn't repent, and the judgment happened. It's just thought I'd throw in there, not only was Elijah a prophet, he did do some writing. <clears throat> and it came to pass, when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now, this is always a difficult message to share because if for no other reason you're talking about two characters in the same story that have very similar names, it's easy to get tongue-tied. Elijah, of course, means my God is Jehovah. He is the great prophet that brought the fire down and the rain down. Matter of fact, Elijah, there's three times you can find in the Bible where Elijah prayed and fire came down. We read about one of them. The other one, and it's in the previous chapter, the king was sick, king of Israel, son of Ahab. 
And he wanted to know if he was going to get better from his sickness, so he sent servants, and he said, uh, go ask the prophets of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, inquire of them if I'm going to get better. And on their way to ask the Baal-zebub prophets, Elijah met them and he said, tell your master, you don't need to go all the way to Baal-zebub. Is there no, no god in Israel that you're going to Baal-zebub? Even sounds bad, doesn't it, Baal-zebub? Who would want to worship zebub anything? It's like, I could never eat yogurt. Why, how can you eat something called yogurt? Doesn't that sound awful? And so he said, uh, is there no God in Israel? I think I just offended everybody that loves yogurt out there. I can just tell from the expression on your face. I see some of you and you're not going to hear anything else I'm saying the rest of the night now. And so these messengers turn back and they tell the king, he said, how'd you get back so soon? They said, well, we met a, a guy, he told us to come back and let you know you don't need to go to Baal-zebub. He said, uh, he's got a message for you from the Lord and you're going to die. And the king said, who was he? And I said, well, we're not sure. He was a hairy man with a leather belt. That's Elijah. He said, take 50 soldiers and go arrest him. So they send 50 soldiers and... Uh, they find him not too far from where he had encountered the servants, and he's sitting up on a hill, looking spiritual. And they shout to him up on the hill, and they say, Man of God, come down. You're under arrest. And Elijah says, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Whoosh! Fire came down. Burn him up. And there's just smoldering bones and irons and armor. King is wondering where his soldiers went. And he says, look, these guys are taking too long. Send another 50. And this captain with another 50 soldiers, they go and they find Elijah still sitting on the same hill. And they see all the smoldering remains of the first 50. And they're probably apprehensive, but following the king's orders, they say, man of God, come down at once. The king wants to see you. You're under arrest. He says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from God and burn you up. Boom. I know this sounds kind of fierce, doesn't it? It plays into the story. Stay with me. It's in the Bible. Take it up with the Lord. <laughs> the king gets tired of waiting, and maybe some witness saw what happened, and they came and tell the king. He says, send another 50. Well, that king is stubborn. He's worse than the pharaoh. Another 50 soldiers come, and the captain. Now, this guy, he comes, and he sees 100 corpses. And he's a little smarter than the others. He says, man of God, I am between a rock and a hard place. I must obey the orders of the king. And he's asked me to arrest you, but I'd really rather not be burned up. And God told Elijah, I like him. Go with him. <laughs> Does it pay to humble yourself? So he goes and he tells the king, is there no God in Israel that you would inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, a Philistine god? Thus says the Lord, you will not come down from your sick bed where you are. The king never humbled himself and repented. When Hezekiah was told he was going to die and he was sick, he prayed and he cried and he repented and God said, enough is enough. Isaiah, go back and tell him, okay, I heard you already. Stop praying. You're going to live another 15 years. You're still terminal, but you get 15 years. Does it pay to pray? That king wouldn't humble himself. So keep in mind, Elijah, he prays and fire comes down. 
So you get in chapter 2, and the word of the Lord has circulated among the sons of the prophets and Elijah that God was going to take Elijah to heaven in a miraculous way, like Enoch. And it says, and came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah from heaven to heaven in, by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now the word Gilgal means circle or rolling. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please. The Lord has sent me on to Bethel. Before he goes to heaven, he stops and he visits the various schools of the prophets that are now prospering because Ahab is no longer persecuting them. He's not going to listen to Jezebel anymore. They're operating more in the open because of the great revival. People are no longer afraid to say, the Lord, he is God, after that great demonstration on Mount Carmel. So something of a revival is taking place now. The prophets have come out of the closet, and they're preaching again. They're teaching the people. And Elijah is going around before he is taken to heaven. He wants to encourage them and strengthen them and give them the word of the Lord. And so he sees the group at Gilgal, and he says, Look, Elisha, I hate to do this to you, but the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. And what does Elisha say? He says, you, you know, you can stay here, but Elisha says, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel together. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, they came to Elisha and they said, Do you know the Lord is going to take away your master from over you today? He said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. In other words, Elisha's been bossing you around. <laughs> Not quite like that, but they're saying, you know, he's been the head prophet. You've been his apprentice, his servant. He's going to be taken away. You will be large and in charge. And is Elisha happy or sad that Elijah is going to be taken away. He's sad. He's heartbroken. He says, don't, don't even speak of it. That's not how I'm thinking. It's a joy for me to serve him. I'm in the presence of somebody who's in constant communion with the Almighty. You know, one time, Elisha was described as the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. I mean, that was his job. They didn't even have running water. Elisha, when it was time to eat, remember what Jesus said? Which of you, if you've got a servant, you say, I'm going to eat? You say, gird yourself, serve me, then afterward you eat. And part of the responsibilities of Elisha was he would help prepare the food for Elijah. He'd pour the water as he washed his hand before he ate. And so he does a lot of menial things. But, you know, that's part of what it means to be a servant of God. And he was happy to do these humble tasks. Paul, greatest preacher, wrote about 35% of the New Testament, was a tent maker. Abraham had visitors that came. He said to Sarah, he's got 300 servants. He said, Sarah, can you bake some bread? I'm going to go kill the fatted calf. They personally got involved. You'll find these people of God were never above service. They said, your master's going to be taken away. You're going to get a promotion. He said, I don't want to hear about it. Then Elisha, Elijah said, see, I told you I'd mix it up. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. He says the same thing. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho together. You know, he's kind of testing them. You remember what happened with the other servant of Elijah? He kept kind of leaving them. Left him at Beersheba. He left him when he went from Ahab into the wilderness so now he's saying, you know, the Lord sent me on another journey. I've got to do this long walk. He says, I'm going with you. How were the disciples prepared to take Jesus' place? 
because they walked with Jesus. The Bible says these are the ones who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. Speaking of the 144,000, they're like your last day apostles. I heard uh, William Frazee say, if you want to follow the Lamb there, then you must first follow the Lamb here now. If you want to be among the 44,000 that follow him wherever he goes then, we must first follow him wherever he goes now. So I want you to notice the persistence that Elisha has that he's going to follow. So the Lord sent me to Jericho. He said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, he invokes an oath. I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. He kept his promise when he burnt his plow and slaughtered the oxen. He said, I'm not turning back. Now the sons of the prophets were at Jericho. They came to see Elisha. They said the same thing. Have you heard the Lord? The word's out. The Lord's going to take Elijah to heaven. He's going to take your master away from being over you today. This is the day. He answered, yes, I know. Keep silent. Hold your peace. I don't want to hear about it. And then Elijah says to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jordan. He said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Now I looked at this, these places where they went together, and you've got Gilgal, that means, I told you, what does it mean? Circle. I did. Bethel means house of God. Jericho means fragrance. And Jordan means descending. This represents different places. Have you ever felt like the Lord was leading you in circles? Do you still follow? Does the Lord sometimes lead us to the house of God? Amen. Did Jesus have a custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and read the scriptures? If you don't have enough faith to get you to church once a week, you probably don't have enough to get you to heaven. We need to be more faithful in living out our convictions, friends. I, uh, I was surprised when I first visited the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I didn't know that Sabbath school was optional. And when I found out about the Adventist Church, and I, I locate where they were, and I um, found out when their services began, and said they started at 9.30, I thought, you know, I went to military school. I would try to be somewhere on time. And so I came a few minutes early, and I was shocked. I thought, boy, nobody goes to this church. I didn't realize that Sabbath school was optional. Why is that? I would think it'd be more interesting to get together with others and study the Word and be able to interact as opposed to just listening to the pastor pontificate. Everybody comes for the sermon as though, well, that's the obligatory hour, but, you know, the other's optional. You know, I think before Jesus comes, one of the signs of a revival is people will start coming together to study again. The Bible says the apostles, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, they broke their bread from house to house daily. They couldn't wait. After work, they couldn't wait to get together and study the Word together. We do public evangelism, and I keep hearing pastors and presidents say, well, you know, the old it's hard to do typical evangelism anymore because you just can't get people to tear themselves away from their computers and their televisions to come night after night to a meeting. So we're going to do a series of evangelistic meetings. We're going to cover our beliefs during a weekend. I said, what? When I started in evangelism, I would do 36 meetings. And I was ashamed because I read about the Adventist evangelists that would go pitch their tent for six months. 
it's really hard for a person to grasp what it means to follow the Lord and all that's involved in the message in a weekend. People need to hunger for the word of God, but you know, the devil's got us where we're losing our minds. We're so we're being entertained to death with other things. So he said, I'm going to follow you to Bethel. And he said, I'm, we're going to go to Jericho. Sometimes the Lord leads us to fragrant places. He walks with me and he talks with me in the garden. And then he says, and we're going to go to Jordan. Now Jordan, Jordan represents death. Jordan was the lowest, it still is, <laughs> lowest river in the world. I, I, was, I did um, 30 baptisms in the Jordan a few weeks ago. And uh, after they all got out of the water and they were gathering for pictures, when no one was looking, I swam out in the middle, I baptized myself. <laughs> Not really, I just, I dunked myself. It was just kind of, I'd never been swimming in the Jordan before. I thought, what's well, a river, I, you know. You think about the history there, Naaman, went down the Jordan. Children of Israel, before they could leave the wilderness and go to the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan. And they crossed with a miracle. The water stopped. And it's a symbol of death. It's a miracle that gets us across. Miracle of God. Baptism. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, as was Naaman and probably the apostles. John the Baptist baptizing there. What is baptism a symbol of? Death, burial, resurrection. Have you read many of the hymns? Look up the word Jordan in the hymns. Not right now. But you'll find it says, Through Jordan's stormy billows, though through Jordan thou leadest me. The hymn writers understood it was a symbol for death. This descending border. And he says, I'm going to Jordan. He says, I'm going with you. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Now, does that sound familiar? Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back to your people and your gods. I have no more sons for you to marry. And eventually she persuades Orpah. Am I saying that? I've called her Oprah before. Orpah, yeah. And, but Ruth, what does Ruth say? Do not ask me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, there will I die, and I will be buried. God, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death separates you and me. Would God, all of his people, made that kind of covenant to follow Jesus with that tenacity and resolve? Lord, wherever you go, I'm going. Jesus said, okay, you mean it? Yes, Lord, I mean it. Okay, have you heard what he said? Take up your cross and follow me. Wait, wait, wh wh where are we going with a cross, Lord? A cross? That's kind of used for uh, crucifixion. Exactly what am I supposed to do with that? I am crucified with Christ. If you would save your life, you must lay it down. Whoever seeks to save it will lose it. It's that simple. If you live for self, you lose everything. You live for God, you get everything. It's more blessed to give than receive, and that starts with giving yourself. You don't really begin to live until you die. As a Christian, you take up your cross and you follow Jesus. Paul said, I die daily. And at the end of his life, he said, I know in whom I believe. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And I know the Lord has laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which he will give me on that day and to all those that love his appearing. Paul had complete confidence he had everlasting life because he died daily. 
If you really want to experience a new birth, you need to die first. Because if you're born again without dying, you're bipolar. Right? You gotta get two of you. You got, you know, the old man is fighting with the new man, and you're never gonna be happy. Book Steps to Christ says a person who's trying to serve God in their own power and through obedience to the law without conversion is they're gonna be miserable and they're attempting an impossibility. And that describes a lot of people right there. They know the Bible is true, they know they're supposed to do good, but they've not been converted and surrendered. And so it's 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 a struggle and they're miserable. But if you really let go and let God is when you find new life. He said, even if you lead me to Jordan, I'm going. So something beautiful happens at this point. Says the 50 men from the sons of the prophet went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. There's a famous spiritual that's based on this passage. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Now they come to the Jordan and it's at flood stage. There's a barrier. What does Jordan represent? Death. How are they going to get across? Elijah takes off his mantle. He rolls it up and he strikes the water. And it was divided this way and that way. Like when the children of Israel crossed over. It's the only other time that miracle had happened thus far. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. You know, I think that's beautiful. Not only did they cross, it didn't just say the water stopped running, they had to slog through the mud. God not only parted it, he dried it like he did the Red Sea, like he did when they crossed over there before they fought against Jericho. So they came up clean on the other side. Now, here's the question. What was it that made it possible for them to get across the Jordan and come up clean on the other side? The mantle of Elijah. Who does Elijah represent? Christ. What would that robe represent? The righteousness of Christ. The only thing that Jesus left behind that specifically mentioned as remaining intact was his robe. A blood-stained robe. And, you know, I picture this in my mind. It's a very uh, dramatic thing. The Jordan's going by, and there's no way across. Elijah takes off his mantle. He rolls it up. Any of you men, when you ever get into a rat tail fight with your brothers or something, you know what I'm talking about? You get the towel and you dip the end of it in water, make a whip out of it, and pop. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Oh, thank you very much. My dad used to do that if we were misbehaving. Pop. And uh, he takes his mantle, crack. The waters part. He puts it back on. They walk across. What is it that makes it possible to get on the other side of death clean? It's only the robe of Christ's righteousness. So there they are. They're now going off into the wilderness, just the two of them. And when they crossed over, that Elijah says to Elisha, ask what I might do for you before I'm taken away from you. Wow, that's a pretty tall order. Says, is there anything I can do for you? What would you like? If you could ask for something from Elijah, that's like, you know, if uh, Bill Gates were to give you a blank check, what would you write in? Says, 
No price too high. Well, what can I do for you? What would you ask for? You know, sometimes we, we waste our opportunities to ask of God. He's more willing to give than we are to ask. I used to have fantasies when I was younger. Uh, you know, I watched a lot of nonsense on TV and, you know, see the witch wiggle her nose and she could make anything happen or the, the, the genie would twitch or whatever it was and then any of the wishes would appear. You probably all heard those stories about people who had genies and they got three wishes and then they waste their wishes. And I remember one I like to share that um, three guys were washed up on a deserted island, some shipwreck. And there's just out there, there's nothing on the island except an island and some coconut trees and they have to drink coconut water and, and there's nothing to do. And they sit there week after week waiting for rescue. And they you know, become irritated with each other a little bit and they're just staring out in the sea and hot every day. And, and one day they notice something sparkling off in the distance in the waves and it's some object, they don't know what it is. And they kind of get up and they look and as the waves are bringing it closer to the island, they walk down in the water together and it kind of washes up towards them. They all grab it at the same time. And it's a genie lamp and a genie jumps out. True story. <laughs> you gotta watch these evangelists, right? Genie looks around and he says, um, oh, this is unusual. Usually I give out three wishes to one person, but since there are three of you here, we're going to divvy it up. I'll give you each one wish. The first one doesn't even hesitate. He sees the genie. He says, I know what I want. He said, I am so tired of coconut, coconut, coconut every day long. All I could think about was going to a smorgasbord in New York City and having all these different foods and eating all I want. He says, I want to be in New York City at a smorgasbord. Poof, he disappears. The second one, he sees that and he goes, I know what I want. I'm so tired of this heat. Every day the sun is beating down. All I've been able to think about is snow skiing in Aspen, Colorado, just going down the slopes with the snowflakes in my face. He said, I want to be snow skiing in Aspen, Colorado. Poof, he disappears. The third one, you already realize he's not the smartest of the three. And he said, one wish? And the genie said, one wish. Ooh, ah, I'm not sure what to ask for. I wish my friends were here. <laughs> Wasting wishes. They always waste their opportunities. Can I share one more with you? It's quick, this is quick. Man finds the genie bottle. The genie tells him you get three wishes. And he does the typical thing. You know, he says, wish number one, I want the fastest, most powerful red Lamborghini that there is. Poof, there it is. Big, fast race car. He says, now I want a Swiss bank account with a billion dollars. Poof, he gets his bank account. He said, finally, he said, I want you to make me irresistible to women. Poof, he turned into a box of chocolates. So... <laughs> Wasted wishes. So what would you wish for? What would you ask? This is a man, he prays, fire comes down. He prays, the rain comes down. God feeds him with bread from heaven by, with an, an angel butler out in the wilderness. He multiplies the bread for him in, in Zarephath. I mean, this man has got incredible power and connections with God. Isn't it nice to have friends in high places? 
Did Elijah have friends in high places? So he says to you, before I leave, anything I can do for you. What would you ask for? What does Elisha ask for? He said, please. He's begging. Let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Of all the things that you could think to ask for, what could be more precious than praying for the Holy Spirit? When the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, what shall I give you? What did he ask for? I've already talked about this. He asked for the most important thing. And Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? But we should be asking him. It should be part of every prayer. Gee, we've, the witness has been our theme this week. And why did God baptize the church with the Holy Spirit? And he said, don't take off yet. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait for what? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Why? That you may be my witnesses. Then they prayed later in the upper room, Acts chapter 4, and the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. If you are willing to allow God to minister through you, he will anoint you with his spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. It should be the priority. The Holy Spirit is cover to cover in the Bible. And, you know, friends, I'll just tell you how I feel as you as if you don't already know, but the Holy Spirit is not an it or a force, it's a him. You find God the Spirit all the way from Genesis to Revelation, from where the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters to where it says the Spirit and the bride say come in Revelation 22. The Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus said he can be grieved. Jesus said when he, the Spirit, he wasn't talking about himself or some force within himself. He was very clear, I'm going and he will come. And there at the baptism of Christ, you've got God the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son. God the Son is in the water. God the Spirit coming down and anointing the Son. Now I know he is certainly the most difficult person of the Godhead for us to understand because spiritual things are spiritually understood. Spirits are nebulous. You and I think in terms of tangible bodies and heads and hands and spirits. Sometimes he's a dove. Sometimes he's wind. Sometimes he's fire. Sometimes compared to water, oil. And so when we say, picture the Holy Spirit, who knows what you're going to picture? And so we struggle with that. But the Bible, if you believe the Word of God, it's clear. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. And we need Him in us. The Bible says that it's a life and death issue. Except you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul said to be carnally minded is a death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Is that clear? We've got to have the Spirit of God. He says if Romans 8, 13, if you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if you live through the Spirit, you will mortify the deeds of the flesh and you'll live. We need the Holy Spirit to draw us to God. It's the Spirit that convicts us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John 6, that draws us. He'll convict us, John 16, 8. The Holy Spirit teaches and guides, John 14, 26. It's the Spirit that quickens us. 
the natural, the natural man does not receive the things of God. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. I mean, it's, it's absolutely impossible for you to live as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And so every day, dying to self and being born again means really praying that prayer of Elisha for the Holy Spirit. And how much are we to pray for? Why did he ask for a double portion of the Holy Spirit? What was the firstborn son supposed to get? A double portion. Did uh, Elisha renounce his earthly inheritance? Did Elijah have any other family that's mentioned in the Bible? God may not have taken him off to heaven if he had a wife and kids to take care of, but there's no mention of his having a family. And Elisha's basically saying, if you love me as your son, then I want a double portion of your spirit. See what he's saying? You know who else got a double portion? Is um, Hannah. The Bible says Elkanah loved Hannah, and he gave her a double portion because he loved her. She had no children. Later, of course, she had kids, but at that time that scripture's mentioned, to show his love, he gave her a double portion. So if you believe, he's basically saying, look, Elijah, if you have adopted me as your son, if you love me, then I want a double portion of your spirit. If you want me to continue to do the work you do, does God ever get upset that we're greedy for him? Can you ever have too much of God so that God says, well, slow down, there won't be enough to go around? Is that right? I mean, if you share salvation, will there be less for you? Matter of fact, the way it is, it's like the bread the disciples gave away. The more you share it, the more it multiplies in your hands. You get more. So pray. How should we pray for the Spirit? The fullness of the Spirit. What is baptism? Sprinkling? Is baptism pouring? Or is baptism immersion? So we ought to be praying that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That it just saturates us. That we're filled to overflowing. Like David said, my cup is running over. Do we need that spirit now? Do we need that, that measure of the spirit now? You know, Jesus said, oh, it shocks me that Jesus said this. He said, these works that I have done, greater things than these will you do because I go to the Father. Wow. Now, it wasn't that the sacrifice of the work of the apostles was greater in its impact, but in its scope, they went everywhere preaching the gospel where his ministry was a lot more restricted. But he gives us the spirit and he says, look, as the Father sent me, and I was anointed with the Holy Spirit, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and I'm sending you to do the work that I have done. Think about that. Christ is telling me that God the Spirit who filled me will fill you to do the same work that I have done. And he'll give us that measure. And if we walk with him, like Elijah walked with him, then we can experience translation as Elijah did. Enoch walked with God and God took him. He was not, for God took him. For he had this testimony that he walked with God. The Bible said Noah walked with God. In the last days, we need people who are willing to walk with the Lord. Amen? So, Elijah says, all right, verse 10. Don't miss this. You've asked a hard thing. Now, can you? when does Elijah ever say anything was too hard? Was there a bigger prayer that Elisha could have prayed than for the Holy Spirit? It's kind of like, you know, forgive the connection, but it's kind of like the genie story. If you really get anything you want from a genie, the first thing you're going to ask for is more genies. Right? Or more wishes. Unlimited wishes. 
right? And so if everything else Elijah did was because of the Spirit, Elisha saw the source of his power was the Spirit. He said, I want a double portion of your source, and then I've got everything else. Isn't that right? So that was a pretty wise request. He sought first the kingdom of God. I want a double portion. He said, you've asked a big thing. Have you ever heard God say, I can't answer that prayer because it's too big? Show me that verse. Elijah says, I'm sorry, Joshua says, sun stands still over the valley of Agilon and the sun stands still. God doesn't say, oh, look, look, Joshua, let's not get carried away. Well, who do you think I am, God? And does he ever say that? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. Matter of fact, Jesus is always pleased when we go too far in our faith. The centurion says, Lord, if you could heal my servant, and Jesus said, I'll come heal your servant. And he sends a messenger and says, no, you don't even need to come. I've got faith. You're so powerful. You just say the word. He'll be healed. Jesus stops in his tracks. He said, I've not seen faith like this in Israel. He was pleased, and he healed him. The Lord always encouraged that kind of faith. He said, you've asked the hard thing. Nevertheless, here's the criteria. If you see me when I am taken from you, it will be so. If not, it will not be so. Now think about that. If you've just been told, if you see Elijah when he is caught up to heaven, you get a double portion of his spirit. But if for some reason you are looking other places, you may miss out. How would you fix your eyes on Elijah if you knew that was the criteria? You probably would pin them open till they were bloodshot, and you wouldn't even tell you'd be stumbling through the desert, falling, because you wouldn't want to miss it. Right? You wouldn't blink. You wouldn't say, hey, you don't mind, Elijah, if I do a little texting while we're walking, would you? No, no, you'd keep your eyes fixed on Elijah, right? How do we get a double portion of Jesus' spirit? We say, like Elisha said to Elijah, I will go wherever you go. I will follow you. When I know what your word says, I'm going with you. You know, if you're following Jesus' word, you're never alone. He said, I'll be with you even unto the end of the world. And the Bible says, how can we lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets us? Looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. How did Jesus say the world's going to be converted? He said, if I am lifted up, what does that mean? Visibility. If I'm lifted up where people can see, as Moses lifted up the serpent, the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might not perish. How are they going to believe? He must be lifted up. They need to see. And he's saying, if you see me when I'm taken up, it'll be so. If not, no promises. And so it says, it happened as they continued on. They talked. They're walking and talking as friends, and that's how it happens. Then suddenly, a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. Elisha never fought, forgot that sight. Years later, when Elisha was the prophet, one of his servants became frightened because the city of Dothan was surrounded by Syrian soldiers. And Elisha yawned and stretched his arms, and he said, Lord, please open the eyes of my servant. And his eyes were opened, he saw chariots and horses of fire surrounding Elisha. He realized there's an unseen world. He never forgot that sight. The veil was parted. Heaven met earth. Angels came down. Swing low, sweet chariot, right? And he saw the glory coming out. And Elijah was being caught up by the angels. And the Bible says he saw it. And as Elijah was going up towards heaven, 
I think he told the angels, hold on a moment. And the angels thought, what? You've got a limousine sent from heaven. You're asking us to put it in neutral? What? He says, hang on. He takes off his mantle and he tosses it down to Elisha. Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took a hold of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. What does our clothing represent? Filthy rags. And as soon as he tears his own clothing, it says, he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. That's salvation right there, friends. We rend our own filthy rags and we come to Jesus and we take up his garment. Now you notice the first time that Elisha gets the mantle of Elijah is in justification. Elijah walks by him and he puts it on his shoulders. And he says, this symbolizes that you're going to have my position. And he begins to follow him. But now Elisha, Elijah goes to heaven, Elisha takes up and it's his own sanctification. We come to Jesus just like we are, he covers our sin. But then as we follow him, we pattern our lives after his life, we live righteous lives through his power. This is what righteousness by faith is. He takes it up and he owns it. Everyone in the kingdom will be given pure white robes, the Bible says. And he goes back and he stands by the bank of the Jordan and he takes the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and he strikes the water and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it's divided this way and that way and Elisha crossed over. First thing he does, he says, I'm going to practice the power of Elijah. And that same mantle that had parted the way and made it possible to cross over had not lost its power. And that robe of Christ has not lost its power today. Now, friends, I want you to notice this. Elijah, before he goes to heaven, he goes and he visits the different schools of the prophets. He strengthens them. Then he ascends to heaven and a double portion of his spirit falls upon Elisha. Jesus, after the resurrection, we saw a resurrection in the story of Elijah. There's a three and a half year time period. He goes and he visits all the apostles for 40 days. He strengthens them in the word. He ascends to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit. This is a parallel for what happened with Jesus and it's to remind us in the last days that God has not changed. God has not withdrawn his promise to send the Holy Spirit. He has not revoked it. I'd like to read something to you. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. There must be an earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow this, his blessing upon us, but because we're unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work by confession by humiliation, by repentance and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us his blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. We need to ask. We need to pray. Not just here at Camp Meeting. We need to be praying every day. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. God wants to send his spirit, but we need to seek after it. 
The Lord is saying to you what Jesus said. Ask what I might do for you. Elijah said, ask what I might do for you. And God says, ask. Ask that your joy might be full. And that word ask is not one time, it's a life of asking. And he promises if you ask what will happen, you will receive. God wants to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, who does he give the Spirit to? If we're willing to be cleansed and be his witnesses. He gives us his Spirit to be his witness. If you're willing to be used of the Lord and you step out in faith, you'd be surprised at the forces that come to your aid to help you do the will of God. You might be thinking, Pastor Doug, I don't know how I'm going to battle the, the, the demons in my life and the sins that I wrestle with. You take the first steps. You draw near to God and watch him. He'll send power to help you. I've seen it happen so many times that if we do what we can do humanly to do God's will, if we step out in faith, he will send all of heaven to our aid rather than have us be disappointed. If we pray and ask him for help, and we're willing to do his will. And then if we're willing not only to come to him and humble ourselves and turn from our sins and say, Lord, I want you to use me. Because being a Christian is not just coming to God, it's then going for God. It's that rhythm. Love the Lord. You come to Jesus in the great invitation, and then you go for Jesus in the great commission. You know, we need the Holy Spirit, and I'd like to invite John to come up. And I want to have a special prayer with you before we close. And uh, don't please uh, respect the sacred moment that we're in right now. I know some of you have come a long ways, but we really want to pray that God's presence would be here. Fellowship's been wonderful. A lot of beautiful seminars and valuable information. It's a rich time. Now many of us are going to return to the places where the rubber meets the road. Do you want to be different? The same spirit you may sense moving here right now wants to be with you every day wherever you go. God will be with you if you ask him. He wants to come into your heart and into your life. And I'd like to ask if, before we close with prayer, if there's some of you here and you've been thinking, you know, Lord, I, I haven't really fully surrendered my heart to you. I want to know what it means to really take up my cross and follow Jesus and live 100%. I'm willing to sacrifice the oxen and burn the plow and go wherever you go. By your grace, I'll follow you. If that's your decision, that's your, your desire, would you be willing to stand in his presence right now? Well, praise God. That looks like most of us. Praise the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we believe that we've heard your word tonight. We believe that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are just as willing now to send and give your Holy Spirit as even more willing than any earthly parent to give good gifts unto their children. Lord, first we come before you. We want to humble ourselves and ask you to forgive our sins. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. All we like sheep have gone astray. Without your help, Lord, we will be carnally minded, but we know it's crucial that we are baptized in the spirit, not just the water, but in the fire. And I pray that each person might taste right now what that is like to know that you will keep your promise and come into their hearts. 
as we go into our regular lives and temptation comes and struggles come, help us now through the Holy Spirit think to turn to you instinctively and then send the aid of heaven. Lord, some are already thinking of things that need to be changed in their lives, the sacrifices that need to be made, relationships that need reconciliation, whatever it is, we know that your grace is sufficient. And then, Lord, after we sense your righteousness covering our sins and we take up the robe of Elijah, I pray then you'll give us the power to be your witnesses, to share the good news of eternal life in your kingdom. Bless each person. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.